Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon. I'm a 27-year veteran of the NYPD. I retired as a sergeant out of Manhattan North Homicide Squad, and we're going to cover some things tonight. Uh, it's impossible for us to ignore the national news, uh, but I have a great guest on tonight. He's a retired detective, Phil Grimaldi. Uh, he worked most of, well, not most of his career, but a, a large chunk of his career in the 6-0 squad. And he finished up his career in Intel. And uh, he was a 9-11 first responder. I believe he's a recipient of the Combat Cross. And he's uh, he retired as a second grade detective. Welcome to the show, Phil. Thanks very much, Bill. Thank you for having me back again. I had to have you back, man. Everyone said, who was that guy? Who was that Joe Pesci-looking guy you had on the show the last time? <laughs> Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. I said, it's Phil Grimaldi. They said, oh, he's a natural, natural storyteller. I go, I know, so I'll have him back on, you know? I appreciate that. That's very nice to hear. It's very nice to hear. So, you know, there's been, in the last couple of days, there's been some uh, disturbing occurrences uh, in regards to active shooters. We had the one in Atlanta uh who chose massage parlors and at first it was the press tried to really sell it as a uh bias incident against asian people but when the investigation was um on it's well it's still ongoing but what the investigators found out that he was sort of like a sex addict and a religious uh zealot and those two things collided into each other and it's almost like he was killing people that were part of these uh, massage parlors. They, he killed two white people and six Asian people. So they couldn't uh, really claim that this was a bias incident. You have any thoughts about that, Phil? Well, I think it's actually very shameful that the media, as you know, I mean, they don't tell the real story. They get a narrative and then they pump it and pump it and pump it. And if you watched uh, the actual you know, live press conference or you got some of the details as we do from law enforcement uh, sources, you know that the facts are not what they're putting on the six o'clock news and the 11 o'clock news. You know, they're trying to make it an anti-Asian bias, which as you stated, some of the people weren't of Asian descent. And uh, you know, uh, not that I want to knock any of the victims, these were massage parlors. He obviously frequented them for uh, sexual reasons. And uh, so the guy's obviously a psychopath. Tell the story the way it is. I think that when they lie and they say that, you know, this is anti-Asian bias, bias related to COVID, and they want to point at the previous administration for calling it the China virus or whatever, that's really not doing anyone any good. And I think what it does do, it maybe inflames people who do have these biases even more and possibly could trigger someone to do something like what this guy did. And it's horrible. You know, I mean, listen, I've said this before. I'll say it again. Any kind of bias, uh, physical violence towards people, uh, whether it be for bias, religion, uh, race, creed, color, whatever it is, obviously is unacceptable, period. That's what we have to uh, get across. I don't care if a person is Chinese and because of the Wuhan coronavirus, whatever, you should not attack them. They didn't bring it here. Obviously, the government of China was responsible. And, you know, so uh, we really got to get that message across. And the media does a disservice by not doing that. Call it what it is. Obviously, uh, it's a tragedy. It's a shame. 
And this guy was a psycho. And, uh, you know, they, they latch onto it because it fits their narrative and politics gets in the middle of it. And, uh, I think Joe, Joe Fox, who you had on last night was saying, uh, some things uh, similar to that, that the media and, and uh, they're doing a disservice to the United States of America. And, uh, you know, I wish there was a way to prevent it, but uh, unfortunately, I think we just have to keep repeating ourselves. You know, Phil, it's, it is disturbing that uh, the media grabs onto a certain narrative. And even if it's not true, they push this narrative and then they try to make it fit. I think you should really listen to who the investigators are and what the investigators are saying. In fact, I believe in the Atlanta situation, um, the governor even got mad at the public relations captain for insisting that it wasn't a bias incident, as if she wanted it to be that anti-Asian bias type crime when they, the investigation had uh, turned up other things, that, that he was obviously a sick individual, but he was a, a sort of a religious zealot. He belonged to some really strict, I think, Baptist church. And they um, wouldn't allow sex before marriage. So he was so conflicted with his needs going to these massage parlors that it seemed like he wanted to kill the very thing that was, you know, uh, satisfying his needs. Yeah, I mean, it's just uh, all around a sad situation. As we both stated, he was a psychopath. But there are times I notice when things are released to the media. Sometimes I agree with a quick, uh, you know, uh, statement to the media about specific facts on things to maybe quell tensions, like in these, uh, you know, these uh, biased or alleged bias incidents against uh, police involved deaths and stuff. Maybe putting stuff out there quickly uh, is inflammatory, and other times maybe it's not. You know, certain facts could come out right away, and it might help. And, uh, you know, but the media just seems to throw it all out there. They don't hold back on anything. They're itching. And then, like you said, they run with a lie. They'll say something that's absolutely 100% not true, and they'll keep repeating it and repeating it and repeating it. It's going out to millions and millions of people. And then uh, people walk around and they start repeating the lie and the lie becomes the truth at some point. hundred percent. You know, the other thing is, is that they always want to find out motive and you're, you're a homicide investigator and you don't always find out motive. Uh, it's, it's important because people want to hear the reason, you know, but in that Las Vegas shooting, which has got to be a couple of years ago, they still don't know what the motive to that was. Yeah, I, there was a media blackout with that specific shooting that you're talking about. I do remember that where they they really held back, I think, in my opinion, more than they should have. But uh, as you said, there really hasn't been a motive confirmed. Uh, the guy was obviously homicidal, but uh, very intricate in what he did in, in Vegas. I mean, he was loaded for war and uh, he set up uh, surveillance cameras in the hallway. So he really... Uh, he was committed and he had a mission. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of people paid with their lives uh, in that case. But, uh, you know, there, there's there's uh, so many things we can talk about and so many things we can try to do. Well, Phil, I don't want to spend the whole night on this. So let's move over to yeah. the other one that occurred in Boulder, Colorado. Yes. And let's uh, talk about that a little bit. Where he sort of just went into a supermarket and just started killing people. 
Yeah, and, uh, you know, police officer Eric Tully responded. I believe he was the first officer there, and he was uh, shot and killed. And, you know, our hearts go out to him, and uh, our deepest condolences to him and his family. He had seven children, as you probably heard in the media. I mean, that's horrible. And then all the other victims. Uh, I don't know. To me, uh, they're looking at possibly maybe it being a type of terrorism. Uh, I don't think it was... Uh, bias at this point. There's no indication of that. But again, it's too early to say too much. I mean, you know, the, the media is uh, all over it and they uh, they really haven't released a lot about it. But, uh, you know, our hearts to those families, uh, deepest respect for uh, police officer Tully and his family and uh, all of the victims. You know, the, that, the big issue that always comes back with all these active shooter things is um, gun control. And where did he get the guns that he did this with? And apparently the gun was an AR-15-like pistol uh, with a pistol stock. And um, he bought it six days ago. So that's the question. Was he mentally capable to buy a firearm like that and would have background checks that would have made him wait three, four days? Would that have stopped him from obtaining this gun? Well, I also heard, I don't know if it's true, it was reported that he had a criminal record. So with a criminal record, I would think in most states, the minute you apply for a uh, firearm, that it, it should pop. Uh, maybe there was uh, some kind of a screw up there where he was able to gain access to a firearm and ammunition when he shouldn't have. Uh, there was also stories in, in the news, uh, early reports that he was uh, depressed and he had issues. Uh uh, anti-social behavior, things like that. So these are all the things they're going to have to uh, look into. And I'm sure they're going to do a deep dive into his social media. If he had any uh, computer friends, they'll talk to family. And uh, I think that they'll probably, since he is alive, they'll probably come up with a motive for this horrible tragedy. You know, they tried to say, uh, or in some of the reports that I read, that uh, he was teased a lot in high school for his Muslim name and he took that all, and I was like, "Stop with that crap!" All right, I was teased in high school too, and so were you. You know, well, and we we didn't go to a supermarket and kill ten people. You know, yeah, that's. Uh, I think those are people that are uh, you know uh, trying to make a uh, something out of nothing. We don't know. It's really not fair to come up and draw a conclusion till all the facts are in. I mean, we can look at things at the surface and maybe, you know, have an idea of what we think it is. And, uh, but, uh, it's really unfair to say 100% one way or the other, whether this guy had bias motive, terrorist motive, or uh, he was just a plain old, you know, uh, crazy out of his mind, you know, Phil, before we get into your case, which I'm raring to do, I just want to shout out to some of our, um, sure, our chat people. Uh, of course, the Pranzos are here, Lieutenant Peter Pranzo and his wife, wife Rachella, Bill Ryan, MC's Audio, Tim Acosta, Kathy Schumacher, Robert Lerner, Sandra H., how are you? Uh, Vin Vinny Falsita, Nick Grimm, Melody McAtee, Seth Hansen, uh, who else? Boxing MMA, all the way from England. And wow, uh, England in the house. Yeah, we, got, we got the English people here too. 12 Step Woman. K-Jack Images, thank you so much for that 999 Super Chat. Joey Brooklyn, what up, Joey? You know, you know Philly's from Brooklyn, too. <laughs> My so we're all at home here. Well, Garden Girl, how are you? Uh, 
what else we got? I think I pretty much covered everyone. 12-step woman, thank you so much for that 499 super chat. You're keeping me uh, in business here. Sam DeFiglia, my buddy, Sammy, how you doing? Great to see you. Sam DeFiglia. Uh, it's it's mm -hmm. great to see some of the blasts from the past, friends of mine that uh, I feel like whenever I say friends of mine, I want to say friends of ours, you know, because like we're made guys, you know. That's if I say they were have... friends of ours, it means they were cops, you know. Yeah. When they're friends of mine, they just could be anybody, you know. Yeah. He's a you friend. Know, of mine. You know the way that made guy stuff goes, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I grew up around it. I sure do know how it goes, but well, that's uh, great. But I just so want we're here. We're here tonight with uh, uh, the retired NYP detective Phil Grimaldi. He worked in the Six O Squad. He was a transit cop. He's got. He's, he's a uh, Combat Cross recipient, and he retired as a second grade detective. I didn't mean to interrupt him, Philly. Go ahead. You got the floor. Okay, thank you. I, I just wanted to, I know we talked a lot about uh, police, uh, the police shootings recently, and, and I just wanted to make one point. You had Joe on last night, Chief Joe Fox, who I worked with in 7-0 back in the day, and a uh, great guy. He touched on a little bit. I had a conversation with the chief of detectives last week when I went to Jimmy Luongo's walkout, uh, Chief Jimmy Luongo. Congrat congratulations on your retirement. But I had a conversation with uh, Chief Harrison, and he was saying how the media – is not reporting anything but bad about the police department in New York City. Across his desk every day, uh, kilos of coke being uh, recovered and an arrest, old homicide case being, um, you know, arrest being made and, and being solved, current stuff being solved, and it just doesn't make the papers. I just wanted to say that to, to the police department, the current members, uh, you guys are doing a great job. Hang in there. It's a tough time, but the job is getting done. Even though you're not getting the proper recognition, the people, the good people of the city are behind you. You know, Phil, we all hope that. And, you know, we've had so many different guests on this show. And I remember I keep bringing this up. Uh, Randy Jurgensen, who wrote The Circle of Six, and he was on the job in 1972, 73. And he had told us back then in the 2-5, the 2-8, and the 3-2, there were 500 murders a year. Could you imagine that? and 10 police assassinations of NYPD cops a year. So although we think these are the bleakest times, they've had some bleak times in the past too. Yes, absolutely, Bill. It seems to run in, uh, you know, peaks and valleys where, uh, you know, there's a quiet period and then there's uh, a very active period. We're in a very active anti-police period right now, but hopefully we'll get through it and the city will come back. I hope so. So, Phil, you're going to talk about a homicide case that you investigated back, I believe, 1993 in the yes. 6-0 squad? Yes, yes. Uh, 1993, I guess it was uh, somewhere uh, the warmer weather had uh, kicked in. Um, I guess we were towards the summer. And we got a call. Uh, it was a Saturday morning, I remember. We got a call that, uh, you know, there was a parent DOA uh, victim of a gunshot wound over on West 19th Street between uh, Neptune Avenue and the Bay. Coney Island is uh, obviously an island. There's the Bay side, the Ocean side. This was on the Bay side. And the Bay side uh, wasn't well kept. Uh, there was a lot of uh, pollution there and debris and stuff. And this was a dead-end block. And there was uh, abandoned cars, old, uh, uh, a lot of garbage, old tires and stuff. So when we get to the scene, um, you know, uh, every time there's a, a homicide investigation, that starts in, in uh, the NYPD. A lot happens that people don't realize. You don't see it on Law and Order or NYPD Blue or any of these cop shows. There's notifications made right 
from the beginning. I mean, when the 911 call happened, I believe it was a dog walker found the body and uh, called the police. So naturally the police respond, they notify the patrol supervisor and the duty captain. And there's some other things that go on, crime scenes notified. So by the time the detectives, we get there, uh, some things have already, the wheels have already started turning. So we get to the location and the victim who was uh, a male Hispanic, probably in his early thirties, he was handcuffed from behind, laying face down when his head was turned to the left. He apparently had been shot in the head. There was a gunshot wound to the back of his head. And it looked like he had some, uh, some trauma to his facial area, maybe his lip, his, uh, his cheek. Uh, looked like it happened uh, pre-being killed. Uh, so, you know, we did a, a careful check of the area. We did recover a shell casing at the scene. Um, but uh, there was also something that was very uh, telling Right next to his head, maybe six inches to 12 inches away from his head was a dead rat, a very large rat. You know, that's that's a Sicilian message, I think. <laughs> well, we were looking at that. Was it was it just an ordinary dump job or was it a dump job with a message? So, you know, he's handcuffed. He's shot in the head. Uh, you know, typical maybe mob style uh, type crime scene, you know, dump job. And now there's a dead rat next to him. So, you know, we did everything that we would normally do at the crime scene. You know, we uh, crime scene came and they they photographed everything. They recovered the ballistic evidence, which was the shell casing. They uh, took the handcuffs off the guy, uh, you know, did prints on the handcuffs, which there were no prints recovered. They bagged his hands. And then his body was taken out to the morgue. Uh, when we returned back to the squad, um, well, let me back up a little bit. Uh, in homicide investigation, the scene is usually, uh, you know, does give some uh, direction or evidence. This particular case, we were kind of like stumped because, like I said, was it a mob hit? Was it a, a, a dump job with a message? Or was it something else? We really didn't know too much, you know, at the time. There wasn't a lot of evidence. Like I said, there was just a shell casing. There was It was an industrial area. There wasn't many witnesses around. Uh, there were no... Uh, there was no uh, uh, video cameras or anything like that. It's like a factory type area. Uh, I guess you would call it industrial. Now, uh, Phil, based on the fact that the um, the spent shell casing was on the scene, did you feel that he was shot at that location? Yes, we felt that he was shot at the location. Um, maybe but there was probably another crime scene maybe where he was beaten up and handcuffed and maybe – tortured because he had some other signs of uh, that he was he was hit a few times, right? Yes, yes, Bill, absolutely. That's a good point. It, it, it looked like he had been brought to that location and shot there. Now, he was obviously handcuffed, so he was probably handcuffed previously. Uh, the signs on his face told us that he may have been beaten up. So you're right. You make a good point that maybe there was another crime scene, but this was the the dump of the of the victim. So uh, there wasn't very many areas to canvas for witnesses. The nearest house was probably a block and a half away. We did have uh, a person who was walking a dog that found the, the body. They were interviewed, really didn't have anything to add. And then the normal uh, routine of uh, interviewing the first officer, interviewing uh, EMS who comes in. And that's one of the other things that's done in, in uh, homicide investigation. Someone has to pronounce, someone with a medical background has to pronounce the victim dead. So EMS is always called and they pronounce him dead. So we interview them. You know, sometimes there are cases where before we even get to the scene, Evidence could be 
accidentally moved or displaced. So that's why we want to, very important to have everyone interviewed or know who was at that crime scene, uh, maybe for print analysis and elimination, uh, things like that. So those are all very important factors. Well, some of the things that, uh, and I, I'm not trying to one-up you, but some of the other things are that you look at the condition of the body, is, the, is it in rigor mortis, which would indicate how long has the person been dead, temperature, right. Uh, of the body, which is taken every time by medical legal investigators. And that can tell you somewhat how long the person's been dead, except if the body's outside and the temperature's freezing, then the body temperature is going to drop very quickly. But there's those little things, a particular hemorrhaging, right, to the eyes uh, can tell you whether or not the person died of asphyxia, right? Possibly bleeding from the mouth. There's all types of medical indications, Yes, that's all correct, Bill. Obviously, uh, you've got that from your experience in these uh, type of murders and cases. Uh, to us at the point, it looked like he had been only shot and dumped within hours. It was uh, not really the middle of summer. It was the warmer weather, though. So the warmer weather does speed up the process of rigor mortis and stuff like that. But from the medical examiner and uh, from uh, crime scene, we all felt that he had been dumped within hours of being found. So uh, we were looking at a fresh, uh, what we would call a fresh homicide. You know, in uh, a body that's left outside, it doesn't take long for maggots to begin to form and things like that and flies. And none of that really had taken place yet. And uh, so there wasn't a whole lot of direction just based on the crime scene. But however, when we got back to the precinct, uh, naturally when a person is unidentified, a missing persons report is uh, is uh, prepared and transmitted and missing persons compared it to any missing persons that they had reported in the last day. And sure enough, there was a, uh, a Queens case, actually a Brooklyn North case, I'm sorry, where uh, a kidnapping had occurred and uh, they uh, uh, said that the male that we had fit the description. We put our heads together. We faxed them a photo, whatever. And they confirmed through the victim's girlfriend that this was the guy who had been kidnapped previously the night before. So naturally we went out to Brooklyn North homicide and they supplied us with a lot of information that actually was very instrumental in the conclusion of this case. And what they told us was, is that the victim uh, was coming home maybe about one o'clock in the morning, his girlfriend who lived in uh, a private house, but she was up on the second floor. She heard the car and she looked out the window and she saw him getting out of the car and he was like parking across the street and down the block a little bit. A van pulls up, four guys jump out and they force him into the van. So she naturally- That's, that's never a good sign. <laughs> no, that's, that's actually a very bad sign especially for this young, young man that was, uh, that was kidnapped. So, uh, she tries, uh, there were no cell phones back in 93. Well, there were, but they weren't really prevalent, but he had a beeper. So she starts beeping him. He doesn't return the call. She calls the police. The police in turn notify Nightwatch. It's the middle of the night. And Nightwatch responds. They get the story from her and they put a tape recorder on her phone and they tell her to start paging him every few minutes to see if maybe there's going to be a ransom demand since he apparently had been kidnapped. So this went on for a while. And then about 4 a.m., the phone rings and she picks up the phone now. 
The guys from Nightwatch are listening in on an extension. They have the tape recording going, and she says hello, and a male voice, it's not her boyfriend on the other end of the phone, says, are you looking for Hutchie? That was the victim's nickname, Hutchie. So he says, are you looking for Hutchie? And she says, yeah, yeah. Where is he? Is he all right? And the guy calls out, Hutchie. He calls out a few times, Hutchie, Hutchie. And you can hear some voices and shuffling in the background on this tape. And uh, then the victim gets on the phone and she says to him, uh, uh, Hutchie, are you okay? Are you? And he says, yeah, 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 I'm all right. I'm, I'm fine. Everything's good. She, Where are you? What happened? What happened? And he says to her, I'm with Muzikita. Now, I didn't know what it meant at the time, but there was a Spanish-speaking detective. This meant music in Spanish, and she took it to mean he was with his friend who was a DJ. So she didn't know the guy's whole name. She only knew his first name. She didn't know his whereabouts. But he said, I'm with Muzikita, meaning she, that he was with the DJ. So she now was slightly relieved that he was okay. He went on to tell her, listen, I got a package, and it was allegedly two ounces of cocaine. Uh, later on, we found out that he was involved in narcotics uh, distributing. So he tells her, I have, two, I have a package in the Bureau. I want you to take it out, and I'm going to send somebody to get it. And at that point, she realizes that the police are listening in on the line, and she stops him. And in Spanish, she tells him, don't talk about that on the phone. The police are listening in. Well, they had somebody listening in on their extension, and the phone call hangs up, and they not to be heard from again. So they, they did, they were able to recover a phone number and that phone number came back to a location in, uh, I believe it was in Long Island, just South or, or, or just East of Kennedy airport. You know, Phil, back then it was, it was a big deal to be able to trace a phone call, uh, to a location, right? Yes. Where- I- I think she had caller ID on her phone. I said Long Island. I meant Queens. This okay. this, this started out in Brooklyn North, uh, and and that's where he was kidnapped from. That's where she lived. But they took him to a location in Queens, which was right near uh, JFK. Uh-huh. So uh, they, they took the phone number, and they were able to do a colds check on it, and they had an address, and they had responded there. And the apartment, it was a two-family house. The apartment was... Uh, uh, empty, but there was signs of a uh, little few droplets of blood. And so we knew, th- they knew at the time that this was actually the location where the phone call was made from. Uh-huh. So then we took a copy of the the, t- the the taped phone call. We went back to the apartment. We found the landlord and we asked him who lived there and he gave us the person's name and stuff. And he said he hadn't seen him. Now this was Saturday, this all occurred sa- uh, Friday night into Saturday. This is like Saturday afternoon now. And he said he hadn't seen him since Thursday. So we said, listen, we want you to call us if he does come back. And we gave him a business card and said, have him call us. But we'd like you to call us first when he does come back. So that's how we left off with him. We get back to the precinct. Now it's Saturday afternoon. And a few, you know, maybe an hour or two later, uh, several agents from alcohol, tobacco, and firearms walk in and they ask us about this homicide. And we say, yeah, you know, and they, they knew the victim's name. And, and so now they had a very distraught look. One of, one of the uh, uh, agents specifically seemed very upset about it. So what is this about? You know, why are you asking about this? And they tell us, they said, the victim in this case, Hutchie, was a confidential informant for them, and he had been working with them for quite some time, and they had developed information where they actually had him purchase guns, uh, hand grenades. He was a very important witness for their 
investigations and he was deep in with them. He had been working with them for a while. They had picked up on him. They probably flipped him during a narcotics investigation and he knew about gun sales and, and hand grenades and stuff like that. So they, they utilized him. Now they were very concerned that he was compromised as an informant and that's why he was killed. So we, we worked together. They gave us whatever they had on it and we kept them you know informed on what we were going to be doing. And now the uh, the motive shifted from, you know, was it a dump job? Was it a organized crime hit? Was it, you know, a message? We were looking really, you know, strongly that this guy was compromised and they, they killed him and they put the dead rat there to send him. Yeah. I mean, Phil, you had so many signs of that. I mean, you had the guy who was handcuffed. Right. Uh, and then he had a dead rat by his head. That's uh, sort of implying that he was, uh, you know, he was talking, you know, to the wrong people. Right. So now we had an all out uh, investigation going, working with ATF and uh, our office, the 6 squad in the Brooklyn South Homicide. By the way, I was assigned to the case with a detective by the name of Tony Angotti, who passed a few years back from 9-11 related cancer. But Tony was a great guy, a great investigator. We had such great talent in our office, as well as in the homicide squad. So uh, I was uh, only a detective a few years at that point. Tony had more time on the job than me. And so I was confident that we were going to be able to work this case and, and come to a, a, a good conclusion, you know. So as we uh, started out with uh, what we were doing, um, the next day, uh, first thing in the morning, we get a call from the landlord of that apartment. And he tells us about uh, this individual who lived in the apartment came back. And he, he said to him, you know, the police were here. What happened? And he says, I don't know. I was away since Thursday. So uh, we said, did you give him our card? And he says, yeah, he's going to call you in a few minutes. Sure enough, he calls. And we said, listen, we need to talk to you in the precinct. Do you want us to come and get you? He says, no, I can get out to you guys. So he comes into the precinct and we bring him up to the squad. We put him in the interview room and we start asking him questions about, you know, his whereabouts and if he knew, you know, the victim by name or anything like that. And he actually was sounding very believable. He wasn't nervous. He didn't show, show any signs of uh, being edgy or anything like that. He was very compliant in the questions. And his story was is that he left on Thursday to go visit family in the Bronx and that he came back Sunday morning and found his apartment in disarray. And his assertion was is that someone had broken in and whatever occurred, he had no idea about it. He claimed he didn't know the victim. He didn't know... Um, you know, anything about him or anything like that. So we, you know, we go over the story a few times. And previously I had listened to the tape with Tony numerous times, you know, trying to hear something in the background, trying to hear uh, maybe a name or a voice that uh, would have been familiar to the girl or familiar to someone that knew the victim. And so I really had it in my head. I must've listened to it 15 or 20 times. Now, as he's talking, a bell just went off in my head and I realized that his voice was the voice on the tape that called the victim's girlfriend and said, are you looking for Hutchie? So without saying anything to Tony and Gotti, I just got up. He said, where are you going? I said, I'll be right back. I went into the boss's office. I got the tape recorder with the recording, with the tape. And I set it to the point right where the, the phone call takes place. I came back in the room Tony looked at me like I was crazy because it hadn't clicked to him yet that this was the this was the same guy. So I take the tape recorder and I kind of got in his face and I hit play on the tape recorder. And as the recording started to play, I could see the blood draining from his face and he became almost gray. And 
as the minute that the tape was over, I slammed my hand on the desk and I got right in his face and I said, that's you and you're going to jail for 25 to life. Well, Tony looked at me like I was crazy. He was like taken back by it. And then it clicked in his head that this was the guy. And was that he, the face and, you looked at him with? <laughs> yeah, something like that. But probably a little, a little more angrier. You know, like I really got in his face. And when I, that was my technique that I would, when I knew I was at the turning point, I would either hit the desk or bang something. And I really shock and awed him. You know what I mean? And he, he, uh, the color ran out of his face. And he just, you know, and Tony said, that's you, you know, we know you were involved in this. And he said, okay, fellas, I'm going to tell you everything. And then he proceeded to tell us about this whole plot. And what so, was, what was it about? What was the plot about? Was well, it about the drugs or was it about him being a rat? Well, it, it, the, the plot really turned out to be that this particular individual was a narcotics distributor. He was involved, you know, heavily. He was a player in the drug business and uh, one or two people involved in it knew him. So the main guy was a, he was a real bad guy. He was a predicate felon. Uh, he was the one that had the gun. He was the one that put the whole plot together and he enlisted these three other friends that were friends with our, our, our witness that we eventually made him a witness in the case, uh, whose house it was that they brought the victim to. And the, the plan was this. Here was the plan. They were going to rent a van over by the airport. They were going to lay in wait for this particular victim, Hutchie. They were going to kidnap him and then exchange him for the narcotics. Uh, obviously, the plan went awry when they were on the phone and they were listening. And the girlfriend said that the police are on the line. Don't talk about it. And they knew that at that point they had to uh, they had to leave the apartment and they decided to kill Hutchie. Um the the uh, he walked us through the whole thing and he said that during the time that they were in the apartment, you know, they slapped him around a little bit, and uh, you know, uh, he eventually said, "Okay, I'll make the call." They told him, "We wanted you to call. You know, we want we want the drugs. We know you got the drugs." And when he saw that he wasn't getting out of it, they had him handcuffed. They were beating him up. He complied and and uh, he went along with the phone call. And when they did the grab and all, you know, uh, there were four individuals as well as a witness who was the driver. And, you know, it wasn't a really well-hatched plan. I mean, he he rented the car in his own name. And, uh, you know, they, they did the grab with these three other guys. But he wound up supplying us with the names and where we could find uh, all but the main individual. The main individual was a little bit more. We had to do some work on him. But uh, so we brought him to the district attorney's office. He was polygraphed. He was believable. His only involvement in the case was, from what he told us at the time, was that he was part of the plan that he rented the van. He let them use his apartment. He didn't uh, plan on hurting the, 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 the victim or anything like that. And, you know, the, the plan was hatched just to uh, get this two kilos of cocaine and obviously resell it. And there was going to be some money in it for him. So when things went sideways, uh, they took the, they drove to Coney Island to West 19th street. They took him out of the car. They shot him in the head and then they went back and he figured, let me leave the apartment in case they can trace the call. And he stood away for a few days. Um, like I was saying, when we brought him to the district attorney's office, we presented the whole thing to the DA's office and they were in agreement to make, this person, a witness as opposed to a perpetrator, so that, you know, we, we had a case where there were no witnesses. It was a, a desolated area. There was no, uh, 
no ballistic evidence recovered other than the shell casing. There was no gun or anything like that. So uh, the decision was made to make him a witness, which we did. Since you know, Phil, the uh, the girlfriend sounds like she wasn't the brightest bulb in the uh, you know in the box either, because here she is uh, on the phone. She knows the police are listening, and she right. should know that he's not on the phone by himself when she saw that he was forcibly removed from their their yard and then she still talks about the drugs or you know she mentions the police are listening you know that probably yeah. got him killed right absolutely i mean i don't think she did it obviously on purpose but uh, that was obviously what caused him to be killed i mean maybe they were going to kill him anyway we really don't know i mean uh, the story that the person we had as the witness was that they weren't going to kill him. They were going to trade him for the narcotics and they were going to let him go. Um, I don't know how true that was. Maybe, uh, you know, having a, a guy who's obviously in the drug trade kidnapped and robbed, uh, you would think there would be some retaliation. So whether or not they were going to kill him really wasn't, uh, I mean, he was telling us no, wasn't clear, but she did make uh, a mistake that if he had any chance of surviving, it was over once she said, you know, don't talk about that. The police are on the line. I guess she was nervous. There was, there was narcotics in the house and uh, you know, the police were standing over her shoulder. So that's right. it was probably a nerve, uh, nervous reaction. But uh, so uh, to get back to the story a little, we brought him down to the district attorney's office. They piloted him. They believed his story. And we felt that, you know, that he was going to be a witness and he was going to, you know, be very instrumental in, in uh, getting to a conclusion on this case. So the next day we went out, actually, we, we, we it was a day, uh, two days later, I had my swing. I came in on a Wednesday and uh, we went out, Tony and I, and a few other guys, and we went to the first perps location. We, we got him, we arrested him without an incident. And then I was processing him and I went through the night and naturally uh, with uh, an arrest like that, you know, just one detective goes, the guy from homicide doesn't go down to the district attorney's office. So we processed the collar and I'm coming back from central book in the next day, which was Thursday. Now I went to work at a four to 12, a four to one on a Wednesday. Now this is Thursday afternoon. Um, Tony, uh, when I get back to the office, says, listen, we developed information from that other guy. We think we know where the second guy is. He's got a, a, a twin brother that's also involved in it. We're going to go. Do you want? And I said, absolutely, I'm in. So we suit up and we go to the house. And there was a bit of a standoff with the second perp. We went. Uh, he lived over in Bed-Stuy. And it was one of those duplex houses. Uh, they're like almost like an apart, like a, a short apartment building, but it was a duplex. So when we went into the house, the mother answered the door. And she was being a little evasive. We could hear some movement upstairs. And we said, listen, we know he's in the house. We kind of bullshitted her a little bit and said, we know he's in the house, you know. And we started to yell up to him. You know, we, we had guns drawn and everything. We didn't know if he was going to come down blazing. But uh, we had a little dialogue with him for a few minutes. He came down. We arrested him without incident. We took him back to the precinct. Uh, he was cooperative as the first one was, the first two were pretty cooperative with uh, giving some information. And they had actually given us information on the mastermind as well as the, the third perp now. So uh, the next day, now I go through the night again. Now it's Friday. I come back from Central Booking and the third perp turned himself in. It was the brother of the second perp. So I get into the precinct and now here's this, you know, haven't slept in two days and here's this uh, third perp. And they said, listen, they said, you know, the boy said, you can go home if you'd like. You don't have to stay. You've been up for two days. 
we'll process the car. I said, nope, it's my case. You know, I'm fine. They just have somebody go down to Central Book and let me drive me. So that's what they did. You know, we went to the district, you know, we lodged the prisoner, went to the district attorney's office, go over the whole case, explain everything. And then I actually had gone to work Wednesday. I didn't get home until Saturday morning, probably about nine o'clock. And they actually had to drive me home. I lived in Staten Island at the time from Coney Island. Was a 20 you know, Phil, it's good It's good for the people that are listening to understand the uh, the hours you work when you work on a homicide case and that, uh, you know, there's no hotels. There's no stipend where the police department feeds you, right? You, you're, you're basically sleeping in a dorm. And if you get any sleep at all. Yeah, you know, there wasn't, like you said, there wasn't a lot of sleep. It was more of throwing water on your face, washing up. And, uh, you know, on the third day, which was the third perp, Friday evening, I was actually in the DA's office trying to tell the story. And when she would turn and start to type it into the computer, I was actually falling asleep in my seat. They had to wake me up a couple of times. <laughs> but uh, that's the thing I like about your show, Bill. To get off for a second, your show shows – the human side of policing and, and specifically detective work. And you're getting a broad idea of what really happens, not what happens, how they solve a case in one hour on television. You know, you're getting the, the human side of it. And I think Joe Fox touched on it a little bit yesterday when he said, you know, uh, he was talking about Pantaleo, how, you know, a cop doesn't wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to go out and, you know, uh, harm this guy or kill this guy. It doesn't right. work that way. We're presented with, uh, a call for service, whether it be a 911 call or a homicide investigation, whatever it is. And we just do the normal steps that we take that the protocols and however it turns out, whatever the results of these protocols are, that's how we continue on with our investigation. Now, obviously safety is always a major concern. And Phil, I, I just want to mention something from the, there's a, I want to mention some of the people in the chat. Ray Demura says, all is good. Still living the dream. When are you going on the show? Gaspar Ramirez, what nationality were these guys, Phil? Um, uh, you want me to answer that now? Or you want to no, go ahead and answer that? Yeah. Um, the, the the victim was a Hispanic male, and the perpetrators were two black. Uh, uh, let's see, three black males and one Hispanic male, and then the guy who turned out to be a witness, he was half black and he was half Italian. That's uh, he had an Italian name, but he looked he looked like he was African American. And Inspector Joe Reek asks, did they recover the two kilos? What did the DEA say? It wasn't the DEA. It was actually the ATF. And no, I don't think that the uh, the drugs were recovered. The way that it was said, he said something about a package in the Bureau. They didn't understand that it was cocaine at the time when they were talking to the girl, when Nightwatch was in the, in the apartment. They knew that she says, oh, no, don't talk to police in the apartment. They didn't catch... I, maybe he said there's a package or something like that. Uh, they never recovered it. We only found out about the cocaine the next day when uh, the person who turned out to be a witness, when we uh, we figured out that he was the person on the tape recording, and he told us about the narcotics. So it was really too late to do anything. Obviously, the narcotics would have been removed at that point. So, But the Night Watch guys, I don't want to take anything away from them. They did a phenomenal job. But they didn't catch that it was narcotics when it was over. That she, he started to say, listen, I'm going to send somebody for something. That's what I believe the actual wording was. And they didn't catch it that there was a package in the apartment. I should have explained that a little better early on. But uh, so they never recovered the narcotics. Um, 
and uh, the narcotics were probably uh, removed or whatever. And uh, yeah, they probably got rid of the narcotics. Yeah, if the yeah. Night Watch guys didn't check to see if they were there, they probably get rid of them. You know. Yeah, the, the Night Watch guys, like I said, I don't want to take anything away from them. They didn't have the whole picture that we had only a day later. They only had listen, a girl calling nine one one. My boyfriend was kidnapped. They didn't know too much about him. You know, don't forget, it was nineteen ninety three. It wasn't like they could run a background check on him so quick and stuff. So they were handling it as an abduction. And sure enough, they did. They followed all the right protocols. They would beep him, and then the call came in. So she basically said to him in Spanish, uh, "You know, don't talk on the phone. The police are on the phone." The minute she said that, it was over. They didn't have reason to believe that there was narcotics in the uh, in the apartment, based on what she said. Like I said, we found that out later the next day. Right now, and what was as far as the prosecution? What was the uh did you get the shooter? Did you actually have the shooter? Yes. Well, like I said, I was up for three days straight, Wednesday to Saturday morning with the first three perps. And then the 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 main player, the guy who was the predicate felon who put the whole thing together, he actually was on parole and we waited. We got in touch with his parole officer. We couldn't find him. We went to a few locations where he lived, but the parole officer had indicated that he was due for a uh, in-person visit in a couple of weeks. So we pulled back a little bit. And sure enough, when he went in to go see his parole officer, parole officer grabbed him, notified us. We arrested him and we had a nice, neat package now. But there was a little bit of a twist in the case later on down the line when uh, the prosecution took place. Um, you know, like I said, we had made uh, the person who was a witness whose apartment it was. I'll call him Chris. That was uh, uh, his first name. And so Chris uh, was relocated by the district attorney's office subsequent to becoming a witness to the whole thing for his safety. And he was living elsewhere. And so now months later, you know, I'd gone to the grand jury. We indicted these guys on murder and second degree murder and all of that. So now we were getting ready for trial pep. It could have been six months, a year later. I go down to the DA's office. I walk in and I had the folder with me. And who do I see? I see Chris. So I, I, I greet him. He's like in the waiting area. I say, hey, Chris, how you doing? How's everything? He says, good, good. How are you? So he says, can I talk to you for a minute? And I said, yeah. And he had like a funny look on his face, like he was troubled about something. So I says, yeah, what is it? He goes, can I talk to you alone? So I said, uh-oh, something's up. So I said, yeah, yeah. I says, come with did, me. Did you check him for a wire? <laughs> well, I wasn't sure what he was about to tell me. But they take him into the men's room. I look under the stalls. I make sure nobody's in the, in the in the men's room. And I say, what's up? And he goes, listen, he goes, uh, when uh, I talked to you guys that day, you know, the first day, he goes, uh, I wasn't 100% truthful. So now I'm like, oh, shit. I said, you didn't pull the trigger on this guy, did you? He goes, no, 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 nothing like that, nothing like that. He says, listen, he goes, when we had him in my apartment, the DA asked me a couple of times. You guys asked me if I hit the guy or anything like that. And I said, no, he goes, but I, I punched him in the face once or twice when we were trying to get him to cooperate. I said, listen, don't lie to me. Anything else? He goes, no, I swear that's it. That It's been bothering me. I wanted to tell you the truth, but I was afraid. I said, okay, that's it. You sure? 100%. He says, yeah, 100%. I said, okay. I take him back in the waiting room. I said, look. Don't talk to nobody till you talk to me again. Do not repeat this. So now I go in to see the district attorney and uh, how you doing? How's everything? You know, uh, I closed the door. I said, listen, we have a slight problem with this case, but I think we can work around it. She's like, what are you talking about? I said, I was just talking to Chris outside. He made an admission to me. 
She goes, oh, my God, don't tell me he shot the guy. I said, no, 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 nothing like that. But when they had him, that when they had the victim in his apartment, they were trying to get him to cooperate, and they had hit him a couple of times. He claims to have punched him in the mouth, and he punched him once, and the guy had some blood coming from his lip. I said, but it wasn't anything severe. He didn't break his nose or anything like that. You know, right. He didn't knock him unconscious. She's like, oh, my God. I said, listen, that's what he told me. I said, let's talk to him. You know, we'll work around it. So they bring him in. He tells the truth. They were like a little bit perturbed. She went to the bureau chief and they said, look, this is what we're going to do. We're going to try and plead out the cases. We'll offer all of these guys, specifically the guys that weren't predicates. They offered them like 15 years to life or 15. Yeah, it was 15 to life. And then the predicate, they offered him 20 to life. They wound up all pleading out. And then recently, about... Uh, Two years ago, I got a call from Brooklyn South Homicide from a good friend of mine, Timmy O'Brien, and he starts throwing some names at me. He says, you know, uh, uh, I got these cops up in Buffalo. They're asking about one of your old cases, and it was this specific case. It turns out that two of the guys, two of the perpetrators went to college in Buffalo, and this happened. While <laughs> so they before I went to college? Is that where you went to? I went to Buff State College, yeah. Oh, wow. You might have been rubbing elbows. <laughs> it was part of SUNY because there was the University of Buffalo and there was Buffalo State College. And a lot of New York metropolitan area students, Long Island and New York City, go to Buffalo State. What year, Bill, were you there? I was there from 78 to 80. Oh, this is way before that. This was oh, 93. Okay. They were on hiatus from school, I guess, summer break, and they hatched this plan to do this thing. So one of those two guys was released from jail, and they were looking at him for another homicide up in Buffalo. This is only like two years ago. That's why I didn't want to bring up their name, so to speak, because they may still be uh, an active investigation on one of them. But he, he did his time. He got out of jail, and I was involved in another homicide up there. So uh, that was one of those things that happens during a, a, a case, a homicide investigation that, you know, made the, the district attorney a little uneasy. But thank God we were able to get around it a little bit. You know, uh, he was he was uh, he was quite calm when we first started to talk to him. And that's what was throwing that really threw Tony a little bit, because, like I said, he was believable. And before I heard his voice in my head and then, you know, him talking and I put it together. Uh, he seemed believable. We were almost like going to take his statement and let him go, you know, and then it just clicked, you know. You and know, Phil, when you said um, one of the perpetrators was going to see his uh, parole officer, so we just waited till he came, went to see the parole officer. And I, I always found that to be amazing that you'd get a guy, he shot and killed somebody, and the next day he went to see his parole officer. You're like, what is, is this guy thinking? He's just putting the wool over the eyes of the world. You know what I mean? It's really amazing. And and we've had occasion, I'm sure, to make collars many times through parole or, you know, we would notify the parole officer. Sometimes we would get information from them on where to find the guy. Or like you said, the guy would just show up for his parole visit. I mean, listen, he's involved in criminal activity. He's not going to tell his parole officer. They want to keep up appearances so the parole officer isn't out looking for them. And I guess, too, if the parole officer violates them, uh, you know, if they get stopped or something like that, it's going to pop. So I guess they're trying to cover bases when they do that. Not too smart, obviously, but, uh, you Can know, you imagine what it must take to violate your parole these days. 
<laughs> you probably have to do a double homicide to get yeah, by. Yeah, you know? single homicide's not good enough. It's got yeah. to be a double or more, and then uh, I mean, we used to get guys that you know they they failed their drug test, they got arrested again, and we're like, "Are you guys going to violate them?" They're like, "No." <laughs> yeah, you know, their their protocols on on what their standards are for violation change from time to time, but I really think it's got a lot to do with who the actual parole officer is. There's some parole officers that had their heart and soul into investigations and they were good. And there were some that were just doing a Monday to Friday, nine to five thing. And, you know, they just covered their bases. You know, yeah, I interviewed the guy. I mean, the guy could be falling asleep, you know, obviously on narcotics and they didn't note it anywhere when the guy comes in for a visit. Whereas if you had a guy that was really on the ball and say, listen, you know, you're going to, t to pee in the bottle right now, you know, uh, you're, you're right. high, you know, so I mean, there's a lot of different things, but today, I mean, uh, I don't even know uh, what the, the standards would be to violate somebody. Like, Well, you know, they always had way too many clients. You know, you'd say, yeah. you'd ask the parole officer, how many clients do you have? Oh, 150. How are you supposed to keep track of 150 parolees, you know? Hard to juggle. It, same thing with, uh, you know, when we had caseloads, I mean, you know, you're getting all these uh, different cases and then the clock stops with everything when you catch a homicide because that's the priority. So now you're, right. your other cases get put on the side and, you know, you're trying to juggle a lot of stuff. Listen, back in the nineties, the, the, uh, the squad was a lot busier than it is today. I'm not taking anything away from those good detectives that are out there today, but I mean, we used to do back in those days, we'd probably do between 25 and 40 homicides a year in a six Oh squad, you know, seven, five, seven, seven was doing a hundred. I mean, now they get, I don't know, five, if they get that many, you know, so it's, right. it's different today. So, but uh, the good, uh, uh, the good personnel that we had, the, the, the caliber of detectives really uh, led to some, uh, some good cases. And uh, a lot of times just being involved in it, you'd say to yourself, wow, I'm, I'm in the company of uh, these great detectives. I mean, for me, anyhow, you know, and you learn so much from every case taught you something, you know? Well, you know, I think that's one of the reasons that the um, New York City detective has that the, the sign behind you, New York City detectives, the greatest detectives in the world, is because when you get a lot of practice investigating crimes, that's how you get good at it. You know, yeah. and that goes for homicides, shootings, anything. The more you investigate, the better you become as an investigator. So, yeah. you know, if you get a jurisdiction that is getting one homicide a year, they're not going to be very good at investigating homicides. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's something I want to bring up that I saw on the news today that's going to really relate to what you're talking about. Now, they had uh, a bomb went off, some type of an aerosol can or something went off in the subway. I don't know if it was today or yesterday, but there was a guy that was filming the whole thing right before it went off. Now, he claims that well, he saw, and actually a cop was going to throw garbage, or a transit cop was going to throw garbage. In, I think it was the Times Square station. Was going to go throw garbage in the pail, and boom, this thing exploded. Now, this guy just happened to be there videotaping this aerosol can that's going to go off because he said he saw it smoking. I know what I would do. I'd grill that mother because he, he might. Oh, he's, the, he's the number one suspect. Exactly. Absolutely. Now, that is from being in law enforcement and you know most people would take that as oh the guy just happened to be there and he videotaped and so what but we're we're not trained that way we're trained to look at things in a different you know different light you know and uh that would be the first thing i would do you know 
Aaron Rodriguez, thank you so much for that 1999 super chat. You've you're so generous to us. Thank you so much. Yeah, you know, Phil, it's it's funny that like when we think the same way, the guy videotaping that, he was to me, he was suspect number one. And he would have been grilled in the squad. And I don't want to know where he was, what you know, who he is, what his criminal background is. I'd check his phone, I'd get a I'd get a search on his that. phone. You just going to say that, yeah, because maybe he taught me the idiot talked about it on text messages or in phone calls, and that's uh, you know people don't realize what police do in investigations, and that's investigation one hundred and one. You know, yeah, absolutely. That that was what I was thinking. I'd look at his phone. Maybe he had some dry runs or did uh, ignited one of these things in his backyard, or maybe he's a, some kind of a police buff and he wanted to sell the video to the newspaper or something. So I would have definitely been looking at that guy, but. Uh, you know, that, that's our instincts. And I think Joe Fox touched on something last night. Now, I'm retired. It's about 18 years already. And as soon as I heard that story, I immediately thought that this guy is suspicious. And I'll see things on the news sometimes, uh, you know, and I know it's a bullshit story when they tell the story. And I'll say, yeah. There you go. There's, there's Philly when he was a, a young uh, a young police officer there. Yeah, that was that was, I believe, around '84. Yeah, that was when I worked. And you, on patrol New York and City, you were New York City Transit Police back then, right? No, I was actually Transit '82 to '83. That was when I worked in the Seven O. That was a year or two after I was in the Seven O. And you and you got that green bar awful early in your career, huh? That was a month out of the police academy. Yeah, that was uh, that was in Transit uh, Coney Island, right down the block from the Six O. Phil, well. let me ask you something: When you go out to dinner, do you wear your combat cross with you, or what? Now, Bill, wouldn't you? Come on, of course. What a stupid, what a stupid question, you know. The, the truth is, I wear this pin. I'm very proud of this B DB pin from the detective bureau. So when I, I'm out, I, you know, I'm, unless I'm wearing a tuxedo or something at a wedding, I wear my pin. I'm proudly, you know. You know something? I had a couple of those, and uh, not to not to brag or anything, but every time I got one, I, I lost it somehow, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I was actually given this by Jimmy Luongo. Chief Luongo gave me this a few years back. And, oh, that's uh, – that was uh, that was a very – that was my second worst day in the police department. That that guy on, on the uh, stretcher with the bag over his face, the oxygen bag, was involved in a shooting that uh, Louis Miller and, uh, oh, and Mark Delpino were shot. Louis was killed. And uh, I was actually uh, – I went with him in the ambulance to the hospital. He was actually probably already dead, but uh, he had been shot in the, in, the, in the gun battle between Louis Miller and Mark Delpino and uh, this particular guy in another part. That was 1987, I believe. Wow. Louis Miller had some reputation as a great detective and a great trainer of young cops. Uh, it, it was just really sad. Uh, Joe, Joe Fox just recently did something on the anniversary. I believe the anniversary was about a week ago. And uh, he had gone over to the precinct and he told a story. I actually saw Louis Miller two hours before he was killed in the precinct. He would come in with the rookies. We were going out maybe two or three hours before we were going out because we used to do a 10 to 6. And he would he would come in with the, the rookies around 1030 in the morning and he would tell the desk officer, we're going to be Sector George. So you could tell Hen uh, George Henry Ida that would be just Sector Henry Ida, and they would go. And he, he, he responded to every heavy job, and uh, that was a really unfortunate thing. And uh, Mark Delpino survived, and uh, unfortunately, uh, Louis didn't. But uh, after while I was with that particular guy, uh, they brought in the – Louis was on one gurney. He was on another gurney. And Mark was in another room. And then they brought in the part who was the main part that shot and killed Louie. 
and uh, he was shot. They brought him in. They put him right next to me. And he looked at me and he, he was like uh, starting to say things. And he said, I didn't mean to kill that old man. And the minute I heard that, the blood just rushed to my head where I wanted to just pull out my gun and shoot him. And, but I, I held, I took every ounce of strength in my body to hold myself, but I went and got a detective from homicide was in the room, uh, talking to Mark. And I grabbed him. I said, listen, this guy's confessing. And uh, the detective was uh, Willie Rodriguez. And I pulled Willie over and I said, tell him what you just told me. And he repeated the statement to Willie Rodriguez, who later testified to it in court. And the guy was, the guy was obviously convicted. Uh, of the of the homicide, I believe he died in jail. His his last name was the Chalice. I can't remember his first name, but uh, he wound up dying in jail. And uh, Louis uh, Louis succumbed to his injuries and uh, re received an inspector's funeral. The Seminole at that time there was uh, Louis and Mark was shot, and then there was another officer killed, Bobby Machati. Late, I believe it was a. a year. I remember that. Yeah, he was a young cop. Yeah. Yes, yes, he was shot. I believe in '89. In a two-year period, we have five. We had five cops shot, two were killed. Mashadi and, and Miller were killed, and we had a, a sergeant, his driver was shot, and then uh, Mark Del Pino was shot. So there were, it was really a crazy time in the 7-0 from, from like 87 to 89. I think they would have uh, – 7-0 was the number one precinct in the city for assaults against police officers. It was really hopping back then during the crack epidemic and all of that. In that picture, I was in anti-crime, uh, and then I uh, – Unfortunately, that when Mark was shot, he uh, he was sent to the bureau afterwards, and then I went up to uh, I went up to Rip. I he was in Rip at the time, and then I went to the Rip unit. I went to the robbery unit in Seminole Precinct. You know, Phil, uh, uh, Jim O'Keefe. He asked me. He said, uh, "Tell Phil hello. We worked together in the six O. Jim O'Keefe. Oh, just wanted, Jimmy O'Keefe, great guy. Great. He guy. wanted to yell out to you. You know, and yeah. uh, it's one of the great things about doing this show is also." Um, you know, meeting some of the people that we worked with again, you know, I, I, who was this famous guy in this picture? Oh, that's my partner in uh, all things uh, acting in uh, uh, Perfect Murder. That's uh, the great Bill you know, Phil, Phil and I were partners in an episode of The Perfect Murder on Investigation Discovery. <laughs> yeah. See, Jimmy O'Keefe, you just mentioned, he does a lot of television shows. He plays in, he's been in Law and Order. He's been in uh, a whole, uh, Blue Bloods. He's been in a lot of things. He really is uh, chomping at the bit with the acting. For years, he's been doing it. That's great. Yeah. And, 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 I don't know. I, I look like a man in that show, and I look like I need some sleep or something. That was one of our other episodes that you were on. <laughs> that was a previous episode. Yeah. <laughs> I look like I got a little younger, so I don't know what happened to me that night, you know? Yeah, you must have been mad about something. I don't know. I don't know. But I tell you, Philly, I mean, you, I love these old-time uh, cop pictures, you know. And yeah. you know, one of the one of the things that of guys like us that were on the job when we were on it, we didn't take a lot of pictures because, you know, you didn't carry around a regular camera with you. Now everyone's got a camera in their phone. They must have millions of pictures, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I, I regret that because, you know, it's it's like a great thing to see photos from you know so long ago you know and this is the kind of job that you know 30 years go by 40 years go by and you see people that you're on the job with and you always have great memories and you can uh, have great stories together you know sure I, there are times that like on facebook uh, guys i work with will post photos and i would say damn boy i wish i had more photos of myself from back then you know you know i always had wished um at the um 20 year anniversary is coming up of uh, 9 11. And 
I was there with um, three great detectives from the two, three, Billy Hicks, uh, Zedekiah Jennings, and Jimmy Zarakis. And I felt that that day, I mean, it, it was such a crazy day that it was almost disrespectful to take pictures. So we never took a picture together. And I wished like to this day that we at least had a picture that just showed that we were together that day, you know? Yeah, I felt the same way too. Uh, you know, it was kind of like uh, ghoulish to be taking pictures down there. But, uh, you know, I, I think that there was probably a place for pictures to be taken to place it into history. You know what I mean? That you don't have proof that uh, these things happened and stuff, but you didn't want to be the one. And back there, you know, 2001, everything was with flashes too. Today you could take a picture with your phone. Nobody even knows you're taking the picture and it'll come out good. You don't even need a flash, you know? So you didn't want to be the guy with a, a flash while they were uncovering uh, bodies and stuff. So No, definitely not. Stephen Gardell, thank you so much for that $20 super chat. I really appreciate that. Stevie Gardell, good man. I, I knew his father very well, who was the treasurer of the DEA. And Steve uh, just retired. He was a sergeant in the movie TV unit. I think you met Steve, if I'm not mistaken, Bill. I, I've talked about him. I don't know if you ever met him. I know that you've yeah, spoken I, of him a lot of times. Yeah. yeah. Him and his his dad passed a few years a few years back, but I was pretty close friends with his dad. who was a great guy, and uh, Steve's great people, good people. I'm going to see Steve uh, probably in the next few days for lunch. Phil uh, Jim O'Keefe wants to know. He, he said, "Ask Phil if he remembers the perp who tried to escape by jumping out the window of the six O squad." <laughs> How can I forget? Let me tell you, that was a go on. That was I can remember the cop who had the cop who had. Uh, the collar was Joe Smith. I think it was Joe Smith. Yeah. And he's now my desk and my partner's desk, our desks were like this. And right next to us was the cells. So he take he, he locked up some crackhead. He was an anti-crime cop. He locked up a crackhead. And uh he's he takes the guy out of the cell to fingerprint him. Now, like I said, our desks were like this. Behind me was a window on my side, and on my partner's side, there was a window. This guy, now we're on the second floor. This guy decides to jump out the window. He just bolts. And his the way that the window opened, it opened out. It was one of those like flip out windows, like a wing window. So he goes to jump out. My partner grabs him on one side. I reach over the desk and I got his other shoulder. But three, quarter of his, three quarters of his body is out the window. And he had his arms like this on the wing part that goes You sure out. you guys weren't hanging him out the window to get a confession? <laughs> if that were the case, I would tell you, Bill. I don't know. But now here's the thing. He's holding on. He's got his arms locked. Uh, the, cop, uh, the cop who was fingerprinting him is trying to help us. I believe it was Jimmy O'Keefe and another guy, Joe Shea, run outside. They're ready to catch him. So he wasn't going anywhere. But now we're trying to get him back in. And he won't, you know, we couldn't get him in. His three quarter of his three quarters of his body was out the window. And then naturally, uh, I jumped up on a desk and I did sort of a dot and dell, so to speak. And uh, <laughs> we wound up pulling him back in and throwing him into the cell. And uh, yeah, but uh, Jimmy O'Keefe, I remember that well. A lot of good, a lot of good stories out of this. I'm, I'm sure that one never got reported as an attempted escape, right? No, we would never do something like that. You know something? Later on in the years that if you had an escaped prisoner, it was an automatic suspension. I think till now that's the uh, protocol. It still is. You know, uh, yeah, PC sure. Kelly, uh, yeah. he was adamant about that. If you had an escaped prisoner, you got suspended. And, and the best part of it is a guy could an attempt an escape and, and maybe get away 
through no fault of your own. I mean, if you're, you know, if guy's handcuffed and you're walking with him, let's say from the police car to you're going into central booking and you only got one arm on him. I mean, you know, he, he hits you in bolts, you know, maybe cracks you in your nose, your eyes tear up. He can get away, you know, and it's, that's no fault of your own. What, what did you do wrong? You know, walking a guy out of a police car into central booking and he's handcuffed. You didn't do anything wrong, you know? So well, imagine they ever, you know, there's been some bleeding hearts that didn't like the fact that, People were handcuffed behind their back, which is the only way to handcuff someone. Oh, if someone's hands are in the front, forget. Imagine the mischief they could do with their hands in the front. Absolutely, absolutely. But uh, yeah, I mean, listen, you could nitpick all of these different things, but uh, Kelly, I, I don't agree with Kelly on that. Saying that right down the line, escape prison or boom, automatic suspension—that's nonsense. If you know, if you're guarding a prisoner in a hospital and you decide to uncuff him and he overpowers you and gets away. That's one thing. I mean, you know, you're not supposed to do that. It could be uh, the fault of, of the officer to uncuff him. But I mean, there are times when I, I saw something recently, I guess it was Brooklyn North where they were taking a guy out of the prison to bring him to central booking. And he just, he pushed the two cops and he took off running. He wound up getting away. I mean, you know, two guys from the squad and I'm, I'm pretty sure they were both suspended, you know, but uh Sometimes it's not your own fault, you know. I well, mean, sometimes it, even a doctor in a hospital can order you to take the cuffs off a prisoner, yeah, so that you could uh, he can be treated. And well, in, in in that regard, if you think the guy's a, a flight risk, you get other people there, and you say, "Yeah, I'll take the cuffs off." You get somebody else. I'm I'm not trying a Monday morning quarterback. I'm just trying to say which would probably be the the safest thing to do. Get some of the hospital police. Get somebody else there. Yeah, I'll take it off, but. You know, don't forget, too, you take the handcuffs off of uh, a prisoner based on what the, the doctor's saying. He's liable to get injured or killed, too. You know what I mean? Right, so, right, right. You got to caution these doctors. Uh, you know, I'm not taking the cuffs off them so easily. I mean, you know, unless there's other people present, you know. Absolutely. But, uh, listen, that's a great – I'm glad Jimmy O'Keefe brought that up. There were some great people. In my time in the, in the 6-0 squad, I worked there from 89 to the, to the late 90s, and – there was really just some great people. And I got to tell you, the, the squad, when the bell rang, we say when the bell rang, you know, a body dropped, or if it was a shooting or whatever, everybody responded. Everybody knew what they had to do. And we got the job done. And the quicker we were done with canvases, the quicker we were back in the office and typing or doing whatever we had to do. And it was just a great place to work. I hope and pray that it's still like that today. I mean, I know that there's great detective work being done out there. As I said, I, I had that conversation with uh, Chief Harrison last week. And, uh, you know, the uh, the job is definitely getting done by the Bureau for sure and patrol as well, you know. You know, in in light of all the obstacles that the NYPD runs up against right now, uh, they're still doing a great job, you know. And hopefully more people support them than go against them. It's uh, hopefully things will turn around, you know, and uh, – this, this mayor who's been a nightmare only has seven months left. Let's hope that the next mayor elected is uh, is better than this guy, you know. Yeah, as they say, uh, don't let the door hit him in the ass because uh, he's, he's – uh, Joe Fox, Chief Fox was saying this last night. Uh, the politicians that are in place right now, they systematically destroyed New York City, so to speak. I mean, it's not completely destroyed, but they did some uh, some real harm to the city and, and to specifically to the police. I mean, you know, this anti-police uh, atmosphere that's going on, defund the police, all of that. It's, it's crazy. It's reckless. It's nonsense. It's bullshit. You could I could come up with a hundred adjectives. 
but it's just really not the right thing to do. And I think the good people know that, you know, that's why this show points out a lot of the different things we do. And uh, it's putting some maybe positive spin on the good work that police officers, detectives do in the city of New York. Well, thank you, Philly. And you know something? We're going to keep doing this show and we keep Absolutely. highlighting the great cops, the great detectives, the great lieutenants, captains, chiefs that come on this show because we want um, the people that are on the job to have a good morale booster and the people that are off the job just have some laughs and uh, yeah. you know, reminisce about the way it was, you know, and that's the way it was, you know. That's Absolutely. And, and one more thing that Joe brought up last night. Even though you retired 18 years like me or whatever years you're retired, you still like people say how many years you did on the job. I did 22 or whatever. But today I feel like if I had to go back today, I could probably do the job. And it's like it's in my blood. It's never going to go. I'm always, you know, uh, just thinking in those terms, uh, you know, as a cop. I just I can't change myself, you know, and, and every cop that's been on the job for a period of time uh, acts that way, feels that way. And, uh, you know, so, uh, it's a good point that Joe brought out last night, you know, you know, something, uh, Phil, if, if, if it's, if you were ever the real police, you will always be the real police. And I don't say that everyone that's on this job is the real police, but the real police know who the other real police are, <laughs> you know, you know, you know, I heard, I like that. I really like that. I agree with that hundred percent on a television show years ago. I think it was the wire. I heard the term. Yeah. He's good police. And I like, yeah. you know, when I refer to a guy, there <laughs> were super cops, they're great police. And then there were guys that like, I consider myself just active. You know, I did the job. I would be good police. And then there were the guys that just showed up for the paycheck or whatever. And then there were the complete zeros, but Bottom line is, like you said, real police, the good police, those are the guys that... Uh, you know, Phil, I remember in The Wire, there was a scene that the guy who was the light-skinned black guy, he was one time a homicide detective, and then they, they, they screwed him, and he went dead. And one of the detectives was talking about him, and they said... They said one, at one time he was the real police. And I yeah, loved it. It yeah, was such a yeah, great, you know. Yeah. You know, the, the actor that played uh, Marlowe in that, he was the real gunslinger, real murderous guy. I met him quite a few times. I think Mike K. Williams, I think is his name. But what a sweetheart of a guy. He's just uh, a real nice guy. And I met him in uh, in Brooklyn at, uh, at Spumoni Gardens a few times. And uh, – he frequents the place, and anybody ever asked him for an autograph or anything like that, he's a real good guy, that uh, Michael K. To me, The Wire was the best cop show ever made. And, you know, there's a guy now, Dominic Lombardozzi, who played yeah. a cop on that. He's got yeah. a podcast right now. Oh, does he? Yeah. A, a good friend of mine who was a housing cop became a fireman was uh, involved with Dominic in the movie that Pete Davidson just did, The King of Staten Island. Lombardozzi was in that as well. Uh -huh. And my friend John Sarantino, who's a, a retired fireman who was a housing cop, he also was in the podcast where, that you're talking about, and they worked on that. John wrote some scenes. He played a, a, a fire uh, a fire lieutenant and stuff like I that. I tried to get him on our show already, and I, his assistant more or less stroked me and sort of, you know, I guess he don't know who I am. We got we got to work on that then. I'm going right. to reach out to John. I'm going to reach out to John. Yeah, you know, he lives in Westchester, so it would be, it'd be like perfect, you know. He seems like a real nice guy, too. He, he used to work out at my gym. I used to work out at New York Sports in Hawthorne. I used to see him at my gym. 
You know, uh, too, he's not I'd be there. banging up four oh five, and I'd get a phone call. You know, and I'd be like, "Yeah, <laughs> listen, that was a great show. That was one of the. That's like uh, Sopranos type, you know, uh, category. You know what I mean? That was a great 100%. show. Percent. You know, Phil, I love you as a guest. I love you as a friend. You're you're the best, man. I I think you should have your own podcast. You're such a great great storyteller. But we're we're at uh, we're at an hour and fifteen minutes. We have to say goodbye. Okay, absolutely. In the way of promotion, I just want to say one thing. Um, April sixth, I have two of the greatest guests that I, I probably am going to have on the show ever. One is Tommy Dades, who's a retired first grade detective, who has a book called Friends of the Family. He was instrumental in putting away the mob cops. And the other guest is going to be a guy named Larry Mazza, who was a made guy with the Colombo crime family. And him and Tommy Dades grew up in the same neighborhood. And they had similar backgrounds. One becomes a cop, one becomes a wise guy. How do you figure it? But they're going to tell their stories on the show on uh, on April 6th. It's a Tuesday night at 8 o'clock. So I just want to pre and And Phil's going to do a couple of promotions for that show because he knows both of them. Yeah. And uh, I just want to let you guys know. I'll let, I'm going to do a flyer, and I'm going to let everyone know a couple more times before that. But for all you police off the cuff, real crime story fans, thank you so much for listening to my good buddy, Phil Grimaldi, who I'm sure will be on the show again, because I love him as a guest. Maybe we'll, I don't know, we'll ever be on another TV show together. I don't know. That should there's I, I, there's got to be something we could do together. This is great. But I'm sure I'll come on again. And and thank you so much for the props. I really appreciate that. I, I mean it from my heart. I love you too, Bill. And to say that coming from you, I, I really, really appreciate that. Thank you very much. Thank and you, Phil. Also, one last plug on that show that you're talking about. That is going to be phenomenal. I know both of those individuals. The story is going to tell itself. And uh, I'm sure it's going to be great. Uh, Larry Mazza, in fact, has a book out called The Life, which describes his whole life in the mob. And he... Uh, he did it all, and I mean it all. <laughs> anyway, folks, thank you so much uh, for watching the show. This is Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon, with Phil Grimaldi. Thanks for watching. Good night, Bill. Good night, Bill.